Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today, we're talking about the role of the emergency fire dispatcher in violent incidents. Bringing his knowledge and expertise is Matthew Huddle. Matt has over 15 years of experience in fire and EMS dispatch in a large triple accredited communication center outside of Washington, D.C. He also has over 20 years of firefighting experience with the Berwyn Heights Volunteer Fire Department. Welcome, Matt. Hello, how are you today? I am doing really well. How are you? I'm doing well so far. Good. I we'll mean, see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> Matt was a presenter at Navigator this past spring in 2023, and I was really impressed. I was really impressed by the content that you had. I was really impressed by the way that you presented it. So, Matt, let's start out with a quick rundown of your career path. How did you get into public safety? I started when, actually, I was 16 years old, and I joined, my stepfather was a volunteer firefighter. And I joined the same fire station with my stepbrother as well for just three years apart. So it was pretty compact time there. And I've been doing that since I've been there for a little over 20 years now. And that kind of gave me a natural path to my career in public safety through dispatch. So I started off in dispatch as a call taker. I did that for only maybe nine months maybe a little bit less, and then got over to fire dispatch, whereas, you know, because clearly I'm young and hard-headed, so I just want to be a fire dispatcher, and that worked out pretty well for me. And then I did that for a few years, realized that this is a viable career path instead of a stepping stone, and I said, hey, this is great. I should keep doing this. And then I put in for promotion. First time I didn't get it, but I got to see what the process is, and then applied again. Got promoted to one of the dispatch supervisors, and they're the ones that approve every call. And a little bit longer after that, I became a one of the shift supervisors there. So I've supervised about six people, six to seven people, and we're going through about 500, 550 calls a day. Oof. I know a large agency outside of D.C. would do about 1.2 million now on calls a year. So just in Fire and EMS, we're doing about, I believe it's... 150,000 a year, a little bit more than that. So we're rocking and rolling. We keep it going, but I'm, I'm loving it. Good, good. I'm really glad. I mean, you would have to love it to have done it as long as you have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that you said you got into it kind of as like a stepping stone because a lot of people I talk to, that's the idea, right? They want to be a firefighter. They want to be a paramedic. They want to be a law enforcement officer. And it's cool that you were like, wait, actually, this is a career and you've made it into a career. 100%. I also don't get to talk to a lot of fire dispatchers. So I'm especially excited to talk to you today and get your perspective. Ready to preach the good word. Perfect. So (laughs) how did you get interested in the topic of the EFD's role in violent incidents? Was there a particular incident at your center? Was it just something that you were training on? 
no particular incident. It's unfortunately, it's kind of a common occurrence, especially these days. But one of my mentors, Dot Aker at the time, who some of our listeners definitely know, rest in peace. But he was very, very involved with not only the fire department, not only with fire DMS dispatch, but also everything that surrounds that. So he went to the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation conference, and they were talking about some of the life safety initiatives. And the one that stuck out to him was life safety initiative number 12 through the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. And we kind of condensed that down to the telecommunicators role for a violent instance. Because one of the strategies for life safety initiative 12 is define and expand the role of dispatchers in reducing risk for the responders. And as a responder myself, you know, that obviously stuck with me. They had been the navigator a few times. I was still kind of coming up. This presentation that we did, I've done a navigator now. We started doing this in, I believe, 2013. And fortunately for me exclusively, and unfortunately for literally everybody else, violent things keep occurring. So this class, I'm, you know, I'm going to submit again for Navigator next year, and it'll be a whole new presentation because that's how our career field is. We're filled with responding to violent incidents. We respond to fires, we respond to medical calls, but a lot of that, violent incidents as well. And we'll talk about the definitions a little bit more. We'll get into that. How, yes, how yes, we, we will. Yeah, one of the things I really liked in your presentation was you started out with the definition of violence. And it seems like it would be a no-brainer, right? Be like, oh, well, violence means this or that. But apparently, Matt, it has different definitions depending on who you ask. So uh, let's talk about it that. It certainly does. So one of the things I spoke about at Navigator is what is a violent incident? So the big one that everyone wants to pay attention to now is active shooters. And that's fair, because that's certainly occurring throughout the country, throughout the world. But when I was researching this for this year's edition of the presentation, I came across how many active shooters happened in 2021. And I got answers ranging from six to 818. You know, okay, that's it's a pretty big a spread. Here. Yeah, a little bit of a big spread. And you know, we'd like to think that one is too many and it is. But like I said, the world we're living in is, it's gonna be really locally defined. And that's the hard part, because really a violence, it can be an assault between two people. It can be a riot at a college town after they win the basketball game. Or it could be a full-scale terrorist attack. They're all violent incidents. And every response to each one of those is gonna be a little bit different based on your jurisdiction, who's making the decision about what to send to where, you know, are we coordinating ahead of time for a known thing like the riots I brought up? At one point, some of the colleges near us, they're like, okay, what if we set the fires for them and then we'll know where they are? And that's been extremely successful. Really? It sounds so weird, but they get the pallets, they put them up in front of the big place and they're like, cool, here's the fire. Okay, that's pretty cool. I was imagining, you know, like when you see riot scenes and like movies and stuff, it's like a car on fire. Okay, I was imagining the fire department going out and setting cars on fire. It's like, oh, okay, cool. That's no, but pallets on fire makes way more sense. Yep, that's how they got ahead of that. And kudos to them; it worked out for them. But there's certainly ones that we're we can't plan for all of them, you know. And so finding the definition is really hard, and that's why. We use the protocol system. We use all three. We use medical, we use police, we use fire. And the police dispatch system pretty clearly spells out that an active assailant or an active shooter is going to be an armed person who has used any type of weapon to inflict 
I'm sorry, inflict deadly physical force on others and continues to do so while having unrestricted access to additional victims. So what I really, really, really like about that is that it's pretty clear by using the continue to do so and unrestricted access. So that makes it very easy for us to set up our response plans. And even on the other side, the fire department can have different levels of an active assailant response, which we've been pretty lucky to not have to do very often. And if we do, it's generally, okay, it's a kid playing on the phone. So we all get lucky there. But we know that, you know, this could certainly happen any day. Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about the different levels of response for, you know, a riot versus an active assailant event or an assault. Right. So an assault, you know, a couple of people get in a fight at a bar. They're really only looking to punch the other person. Right. Right. But with the protocols definition, you know exactly what an active assailant is going to be. Right. They have unfettered access to more victims. They have hurt people or have the intent to hurt people and you know, the opportunity to do, to do so. so. Exactly. And like you said, that will require a different response than, you know, a bar fight. Mm-hmm. What is premise history and why do EFDs need to know about it? Okay. So one of the things that we've done in our CAD process, and we're using a Motorola CAD, so this should be pretty available to probably too many people. But one of the things we've done is that we have premise histories and premise hazards. And histories can be something like, hey, this is a nursing home. There's going to be an AED over here. And there's going to be six monitored beds in this nursing home. Your premise hazards are going to be like, hey, this guy really hates cops. And he's looking for one to kind of kill him. Or he's going to try to kill them too. So maybe we should tell everybody about that. And that can be applied to a couple different levels. So we can have it applied to a specific address. And that's more so of your premise hazard, like, hey, this address is a nursing home. And other ones, we have a range. So it could be 500 yards, 500 meters, like a mile out from this one address. But you're going to be near here. So this one address is going to be a kind of angry dude that you're there. And one of the things that the CAD has done for us on part of the technology side is that we can't even do anything with the call until we read and acknowledge in CAD that we've seen that and we're taking that information in. So we can't dispatch the call without making sure that we see that hazard and that it's getting passed on. We can't even dispatch it. So that's a good check for us as the dispatchers. But we've always said that, you know, a curious dispatcher is the best kind of dispatcher because they're going to look around. They're going to be snooping through what's going on. They're not going to be going all the way through everybody's, you know, criminal histories because we definitely can't do that one. But you know, they can still see, hey, uh, they call 911. They call 911 every Thursday. That's kind of weird. Last Thursday, it was this. The Thursday before that, it was this. So just having the dispatchers kind of tuned into where the, our responders are going, it's very helpful. Yeah, it's a bigger view, right, than the responders can have. What other responsibilities do the call taker and dispatcher have in these kinds of incidents? Well, the call takers, they're, they're bringing us the information. The dispatcher can't do anything without the telecommunicators. They're doing, they're doing the work. They're talking to the people. They're getting yelled at by the people. They're being degraded by the people, but they're getting us the information. That's an extremely key role. But the dispatchers, we have two different types of information. We have pertinent information and we have vital arable information. So the basics of it is that pertinent information is, hey, when you get into the mall, he's going to be in this door. And we're just going to tell them that, and we're going to assume that they heard that. The vital arable safety information, that is very different because that is information that we have, 
and we're going to give that information and we want to make sure that they've heard us. So we require our responders to acknowledge that. Two examples. So like in fire world, we want to say, hey, someone is trapped on Bravo quadrant of the home in the back bedroom. And we ask our first engine, we ask our search companies, we ask our battalion chiefs, there's someone trapped in the back bedroom. Do you hear me? And we make them come back and say to us, yes, we hear you. That applies to medical calls. I was on the radio today and I said, hey, ambulance people, this is a newborn. They've been born for about eight minutes and there's two nurses on the scene and they're doing CPR. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's information they need and they're pretty important. In reference to violent incidents, we can say, hey, responders, this person called back and said, he's going to kill you all when you walk in the door. So maybe don't walk in the door. Do you hear me? And as you heard in my presentation, I didn't make that one up. That's a real example. That happened. We had two units going to a medical local. The guy called and said he had chest pains. Fairly normal. People have chest pains all day long. <laughs> They're pulling up. He called 911 back. He goes, I'm going to kill the responders when they get here. When they come to the front door, I'm getting them. You know, <laughs> excuse me? But that's one of those things. You know, as a dispatcher, once that information comes across and hopefully someone's standing up in the 911 center and saying, hey, hello, you need to know about this really quickly. That's something we need to take charge of the radio and say, hey, everyone, hold on a second. You, listen to me. You're going to walk in. Someone's going to try to screw you or try to kill you. I need you to get out of there. Do you understand? And then we want them to, <laughs> we definitely want them to be like, yes, absolutely. Thank you for telling us. I understand. Let me get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there are there are incidents where, you know, the the caller or someone will call back and say, hey, I'm I'm going to kill the responders as soon as I get here. And there will be situations where the caller comes right out and says, I'm going to hurt the responders when they get here. But there are also situations where the dispatcher and the call taker need to use their active listening skills to kind of figure out what's going on in the background. What are active listening skills to you and how can people develop them? This is fun for me because I'm also an ETC instructor. So I really get to try to push this. Like as soon as people are beginning, I get to tell them like, hey, you have to listen to everything, not what they're telling you. You're listening to the background noise. So if someone is calling you to tell you that their house is on fire and they're coughing a lot, they may be more worried about their house being on fire than the fact that they're they had to run out of their burning home. So at that point, you're going to ask them more different questions. And you're going to maybe pull up the medical protocol as well to, you know, get some information out of them. And that's just, you know, intuition. And we have one example we always use is that this is more law oriented, but caller called 911, said, hey, someone's breaking in my house. Oh, that's not good. So, okay, we're going to stay on the phone with them and get more information. Let's get this going. And they're gathering information and the call taker here is like a, just noise in the background and it took a second to think about it. I'm like, Hey, uh, caller, what, what's that? Uh, what's that noise? What are you, what are you doing over there? And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm loading up my shotgun. I'm, I'm ready to defend my home. Okay. Well, you're certainly well within your rights to defend your home, but that's good information for the call taker to have good information for the call taker to pass along. And that's good information for us to give not only, you know, if there's a fire response, we want to do that, but the police dispatcher or the law enforcement dispatchers as well, that's important that they know, hey, you're going to get a bad guy. There's a not bad guy who also has a gun. But that's going to be that communication you know, between the uh, dispatchers and the call takers. You're going to say, hey, police are approaching. Let's have our caller make sure he has his weapon stowed away or put away or at least not in his hands. 
and get that started so the police know that there's going to be somebody with a gun there. And even while they're in route to that, you know, something may occur while they're in route. So that's just, it's just good information to be able to pass along to them for sure. But listening, that active listening skill, you know, even now, like as a dispatch supervisor, I'm not particularly on the radio as much. I'm on the phones even less. But I like to say that I'm listening to nothing, but I hear everything. So when I get in, I turn up all the radio channels and I'm listening to all my dispatchers and they're going to run medic locals and fire calls all day long. And I'm going to assume that all is going well. But then you hear those certain key words and you're like, wait a minute. You know, you're monitoring everything, but you're you're listening out for the, the weird things and things that are standing out. It sounds like it's a lot of experience, right? Where we've talked on this podcast about kind of like instinct, like dispatch instinct, where even if you're brand new at the job, if you get the feeling that something's a bit weird, you can kind of look into that. But with with experience, yeah, you know, you know which keywords are leading up to bigger things. And it's so frustrating. It's not well, not frustrating. It's so difficult to teach that, especially because, you know, that experience is experience. It comes with time. It comes as you progress through your career. So when you try to explain active listening or you try to explain the listening to nothing but hearing everything, it's, that's where it's, it's just it's very hard to teach. And but, you know, you just have to have faith in yourself as a new person or as a seasoned person. Yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 18 years and I still have room to grow, still room to learn. It's always nice to pick up new things. And it's not like people are starting from scratch, right? I'm sure the person who took the call where the shotgun was being loaded up, they hadn't heard that over the phone before, or maybe they had, but they knew that something wasn't right, right? They didn't need to know exactly what was happening, but they needed to know enough like, oh, if someone is calling in to report a robbery, they'll probably sound like this. Their voice will sound like this, and the background might sound like this. So they they kind of have this expectation, right? And then if something weird sticks out, they're like, mm, let me investigate this a little bit more. Like you said, just back are nosy <laughs> but it's it's so tough because live and work in such a structured environment you know we have protocol questions we have policies we have procedures and here's what you do for this and here's what you do for this and here's what you do for this but what about what happens when something goes a little bit off barrels what do you do then it's just it's difficult to teach yeah and the principle of keeping the caller safe keeping the responders safe if you think that something could potentially be dangerous Legally and officially, I cannot say go off script, but investigate. If it's your own curiosity being like, oh, well, what kind of smoothie are you making? I hear your blender. I mean, obviously that's not appropriate, but if you hear, you know, metallic noise or if you hear sound like a gun cocking, it is absolutely appropriate to stop and say, hi, what is that? What's that noise? Exactly. And that's why I'm such a a believer of course like when i got hired i was like 19 it's like okay i know medical protocols now i gotta learn all these other protocols wow and then you go you go through it and you you see it and you see how they affect everything else for how you're responding to things and so that's when i became a believer because just like you said caller safety is paramount right all three of the protocols address that if the complaint description includes scene safety issues you want to choose the chief complaint protocol that best addresses those issues Another rule, always inform responders if weapons are involved or if any information relates to officer safety. You know, always notify responders as quickly as possible if incident information changes or if issues at the incident pose a threat. 
caller safety is paramount and responder safety is right behind that. Yeah, the principles are absolutely sound. And by following the protocol, it it kind of frees up more of your brain to listen for that background stuff, right? Because, you know, you have the script in front of you. You're like, okay, I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask this. And your brain is kind of used to it. So it it's looking for weird things. It's looking for out of place things. And that is an aspect of the protocol that I don't think a lot of people talk about. 100%. It makes it really easy to do the rest of it. Yes. Is there anything else you would like to cover about the emergency fire dispatcher's role in violent incidents? Yeah, one of the things I really push is don't censor yourself. Everyone is so scared to say bomb on the radio. Why? I know some people are still using 10 codes and signal codes, and it's just why make it muddier? Tell the people what they need to hear. You got to give them the information that we have. We have the information. Why are we holding it? Clear communication is paramount in all aspects of life. But I would say it's like a little more important in situations like this. If anybody else wants to look into an incident that always sticks out to me, there was an incident in 2013 in uh, Gwinnett County, Georgia. And there's a lot of information available online. So I'm not going to go too, too far into it. Just want to give a brief overview if that's fine with you. Please, please do. So down and dirty is uh, the caller called 911, said I'm having chest pains. So, you know, chest pains, no more breathing. He took the aspirin at the, the call taker's direction, shoot him while he was on the phone, he's rocking and rolling. They arrive on scene, the fire department does, the engine company, and very, very quickly they become hostages. And that's something that I'd like to point out as a dispatcher. Because call takers are dealing with, they're dealing with victims. They're dealing with patients. We, as dispatchers, are dealing with first responders. And, uh, you know, in some centers, all people do is fire an EMS dispatch or just fire dispatch. And a lot of skills can atrophy after a while. So all of a sudden now, you're not a fire dispatcher, you're a hostage negotiator. And I just like to point that out and it's a more of a thinking exercise like okay if you're all of a sudden on that radio and that happens to you what are you going to do like this guy he wanted his power turned back on and his cable and they wanted him to turn his cell phone back on and as a dispatcher what are you doing what what do you do there it's tough yeah it's so tough right because that's i mean that's not your job but all of a sudden it is your job and yeah yeah you you have to know the principles you have to know the principles behind you know, dispatching and then also hostage negotiation, which is a lot. <laughs> that's a that's a big responsibility. Yeah. And like you said, yes, you, you can't let you can't let those skills atrophy. You have to practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another thing for fun is that as soon as your hostage negotiations start, the other calls don't stop. When we have a house fire, we can't tell everyone, uh, all right, guys, we got a we got a fire right now. If you could stop uh, calling for ambulances, just give us like an hour. We'll get this taken care of. Then you can call out one. You know, just remember that as you're gonna, your one big thing or your two big things or your three big things are happening, everything else is too. Absolutely. Matt, this is a little bit off script, but you've been in dispatch for a while. When you get big calls like that, right, when you get a CPR call, when you get a call where you know, something unfortunate happens, something tragic happens. What is your personal way of kind of processing that? That's a very good question. So as a supervisor, the first thing I, I think of, or at least try to make myself think of, I'm still working on it, is that I need to make sure that the people that are working for me or that are working on the radio, that they're okay. We had an incident uh, actually a couple of weeks ago. 
And it was like, okay, this isn't great. What's happening here? Let's get this person off the radio. Luckily, we had a SISM, a stress management person in the building at the time. So I was able to grab them as well and take them to another room and say, hey, there's some water. You sit here for as long as you need to do. They're here. They're not going to push you to talk about anything. But if you want to talk about anything, you're right here. And I, at that point, I need to remove myself from this situation. I'm not trained in that, but I can help them get to where they need to be. But it's always thinking about the people that are interacting with it personally. I'm more of a laid back situation. So, you know, the CPR is like, oh, that's unfortunate. We're going to get our people out there and we're going to get that taken care of. If it goes bad, we can deal with it internally here. Same, you know, any fires or crashes or anything that go bad. You know, everybody has those calls that kind of mess with you. And I'm just, you know, that's what I said earlier. You know, I try to, I never stop growing. You never want to stop learning. And that's where I'm at now, focusing on a more interpersonal, where I can take the people on the ship, the people on the, that are dealing with it, you know, firsthand. It's in their ear. They're going through it and how to make it a little bit better for them. That's a beautiful perspective. I had never thought of it like that before. Connection's really important. Yep. Yeah, and personal growth. Who who doesn't like personal growth? Just kidding. I hate growing, but I do it because that's because <laughs> you have that's to you have to keep growing. Got to do it. Yes, Matt. If you could leave the listeners with one final piece of advice or wisdom or something to chew on, what would it be? Mm, I would just like people to remember that we have the information and we should be sharing the information. We have it. There's no real reason to not share that with the world. Don't censor yourself. Perfect. If you are interested in hearing more from Matt, he is going to be at Navigator 2024. He will be there. You can chat with him. He'll have an updated presentation. And if you are listening to this and saying, hey, I have a perspective on the EPD's role in violent incidents, get in touch. Oh, I would love that. I would love love that. that. Yeah. Get in touch with us at Dispatch in Depth at emergencydispatch.org. And Matt... We'll talk to you later. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 